So when I talk about the temples of the Aztecs and I talk about the guillotines, this is the modern version of that. They are not happy until blood is spilled. They go into frenzies and cancel is the modern guillotine. And if they can't cancel, then they start making actual physical threats. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Unspeakable podcast. That was a taste of this week's guest, internist, addiction medicine specialist, and all-around celebrity physician, Dr. Drew Pinsky, who's known for a lot of things, but perhaps most of all for co-hosting the call-in show Loveline with Adam Carolla. I am your host, Megan Daum, and I'm coming to you from my still undisclosed, or I hope mostly undisclosed, location in rural Appalachia. I bring this up by way of offering a little context for this interview. If you follow me on Twitter, you may recall, although I'm really hoping you don't recall, a dust-up that occurred a few months ago over my uh, apparently unwise decision to publish an essay about how I had come down here from New York in March to escape the coronavirus. Um, A few people on Twitter decided to interpret this uh, as not only my somehow knocking Appalachia, which couldn't be farther from the truth, but as my being a, quote, literal murderer, because I was surely bringing the virus down here and infecting everyone in my wake. This turned into at least a week-long major dragging on Twitter, and I mean major, like People were demanding to know my location so they could check health department statistics and numbers of hospital beds or something, and it got pretty out of control, even by Twitter standards. Around the same time, my guest, Drew Pinsky, was getting a major online pummeling himself, sparked by some of his initial comments about the seriousness of coronavirus and whether the media was being alarmist. He thought it was. Then a social media user made a video compiling a bunch of his comments. Um, Some of them were taken out of context. And naturally, this video went viral. And suddenly, Dr. Drew was getting his ass handed to him in a big way. He ended up apologizing for the parts of his message that he'd gotten wrong. But he was also quite traumatized about the whole thing. And we had a couple of conversations about that, including the one you're about to hear. Now, this conversation took place back in May, so it does not get into the most recent developments with the virus or the news in general, but I think that's actually what makes it kind of special. We talk about Drew's tortured relationship with the media and even his tortured relationship to himself. Um, I would also note that at the time of this interview, I was planning to call the podcast The Problem With Everything. And so at one point, I ask him what he thinks uh, the problem with everything is, Uh, And his answer is interesting, but the question sounds a little bit out of left field. So I just want to tell you why. It's a long process getting a podcast going, which uh, you may know, since I think roughly 25% of people have one now, including Dr. Drew. He's actually got like four podcasts. I will shut up now. Here's the interview. We were talking the other day about this tension between wanting to be honest and say, what we're actually thinking and observing about the world and saying things that will potentially upset people, but then being upset when people get upset with us. And uh, this has been described to me as counterphobic, actually, like having this need to be liked and approved of, but also compelled to sort of 
rouse people up. So do you have right. thoughts about that in terms of your own? I think last time we talked about this, I was wondering whether I was engaged in some sort of traumatic reenactment where I was saying things that re-traumatized me by the way I evoked awful things from people. And it's traumatic. It is actually traumatic the way people respond these days. And it actually becomes dangerous. That's what's uh, really so disturbing about it. So I, I don't know that it's counterphobic because it just doesn't feel natural to be observing things and to not speak truthfully about it. It feels peculiar, it, especially if that's your always been your job is to try to make sense of things for people. And you're trying and you're just when since when did make sense making trying to struggle with things become a dangerous sport? Since when is, the, is my question. Did you notice this? five years ago? I mean, you have been in this business, what, 30 years or more? And you've been applauded and rewarded and respected for doing these very things. And suddenly it's like the opposite of what you're supposed to do. Like, when would you say that this started? When you ask that question, what I start to think about is when I first started reading Amazon book reviews of my books, I felt like that was where I experienced outrage. I was like, you don't even understand what I was writing about and you're sitting in judgment. And I was practicing medicine full time then. So I was deeply connected to my profession. You know, I thought I was doing terribly important work. I thought I was doing it well. And when somebody would come at me, I would really, it would cut me to the core and I would feel diminished but I, it, so this was happening as I was read these sort of Amazon book reviews and there was no way to respond. Right. And so I would just brood about it. And this would happen sometimes too, when Adam and I would go out to colleges and uh, speak. I remember there was an, another time where we were backstage and the sort of kid that was leading us around goes, oh, somebody really wants to talk, just really wants to talk to you. Can't wait to talk to you. And this woman comes in and goes, do you think the world is a, wor a better place because you guys are alive? And we were like, what? <laughs> Who are you? What are you This was a student? About? Like, how old was this person? 19, 20. Okay, this was a student. And this is probably 1999, something like that. So like 20 oh, years ago. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. And we were just sort of confused by these things. Adam's way of dealing with it back then was just like, scram, just get out of here. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, whoa, I'm going to hang out here. What are, you, what are you talking about? What are you? I like immediately go into like... I. I want to defend myself. I want to engage. I want to talk about it. There's no talking. There was no talking. In my book, The Mirror Effect, I wanted to include a chapter. I, I was so disturbed by the way I saw the narcissistic turn going that I, I was looking through history for other examples to understand where it goes and how you get out of it. And I was really specifically looking at childhood trauma and other periods of history where there was just tons of childhood trauma. And if you look at pre-revolutionary France, it, it was just ridiculous. I mean, kids had a, like a one in five chance of, first of all, being cared for by their parents and not ending up in an orphanage. And there was a one out of 30 chance or something of survival. I mean, it was just trauma after trauma. And if you read um, Rousseau's uh, Confessions, which is his autobiography, it, you just see him being traumatized and traumatized and traumatized. And, and he was the godfather of of that revolutionary thinking, which was so, so horribly destructive. And I thought, wow, the only things I could find is Aztecs, when they were at their most brutal, when they had something called the Codex, which was essentially a cultural lexicon of how to turn your child into a warrior. Mm -hmm. And it was holding them over fires, beating them, all these horrible traumas. And then guess what? Once you've been horribly traumatized like that, 
you're going to want to kill each other. And the way they focused that aggression was one person up there in the temple every day. We kill that guy. And then now we're all okay. We're going to kill that guy and throw his body down the stairs. And now we can go about our business. But the revolutionary France was the other thing where, again, human sacrifice always starts to enter into it, where we now put people on the guillotine. And the problem with all of these winds of um, culture is no one escapes. Everyone ends up on the guillotine eventually. No one is pure enough. No one is perfect. Because if all you're doing is sitting in moral outrage and judgment of all of your human beings, well, ain't nobody going to measure up. And taken down by your own side. I mean, I think one of the things I've noticed, you know, you talk about the Amazon reviews. And I remember that, too, because I think the first book I published was either Amazon was around, but it wasn't like a thing to look at the reviews or to write them. And I remember my second book, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is a painful experience. This is acutely painful. (laughs) This is unpleasant. Yeah. And then you're, that was back when, you know, the, the publisher would tell you to, like, get your friends to write reviews for you um, and in some cases to counteract the negative ones. And, and, and to be fair, I don't um, discourage thoughtful reviews. I like that. I, I'm the kind of person I, I that's how I change. I want my mind to change all right. the time. I want. Although you should never go on Goodreads. Why would that? Well, that's where the uh, the young adult culture wars are played out, especially. Mm-hmm. And that's the worst. I'm about to publish, about to publish young adult. <laughs> Okay, this is great. No, what I'm trying to remember with you is like, when did critical thinking become weaponized? Because, you know, I think you're about like 10 or 11 years older than I am. I mean, you grew yeah. up, you know, I think people know this about you. We don't have to dwell on this. You grew up in Pasadena. You went to, you know, school with smart people. You went to Amherst. And, you know, that's the kind of place I can imagine where critical thinking was emphasized. That's what you were there for. You were there to learn how to argue with your peers, right? Like that was the idea. End of story. And it was exquisite training. It was amazing, both as a scientist in terms of scientific training and critical thought there, and in terms of reading, writing, and discourse. It was all about critical analysis, all about critical thought. To me, I'm baffled by this. I'm just, I'm completely bewildered by the idea that critical, careful, critical reasoning is somehow, you know, has limited of any value. And, and the only place I can point myself to understand how we could end up in a place like that is post-structuralism, where nothing matters. Uh, and science is just another way of looking at things. Right. And science is, is a sort of post-colonial gesture, right? I mean, science right. is, is the man <laughs> and is pri- discourse of privilege. Yeah, and critical thought is the same thing. It's just a way to to control the oppressed. And while I am wide open to these arguments and to thinking about them and considering them and seeing about how we can sort of from a Hegelian perspective, you know, come up with a new synthesis where they they aren't used that way as opposed to throwing them out. And now that they're thrown out is ruled by the Dunning-Kruger effect. Right. The (laughs) Dunning-Kruger effect is alive and large everywhere I look. And the, the only antidote I know is experience, so training and experience in whatever the area is you claim to have knowledge. Why don't you actually, Drew, explain to our listeners what the Dunning-Kruger effect is for those who don't yeah. know? Because it's all over. And the other would be critical. Yes. Yeah, Dunning-Kruger is everywhere. Dunning-Kruger is what was going on in those Amazon reviews that made me so upset. I'm like, who, who is this person? What, she doesn't understand what she's saying even. And Dunning-Kruger is essentially the way I like to frame it for people. It's a cognitive distortion 
And it is what let, allows people to get up and sit in front of the American Idol judges, sound like hell, and think they sounded great. That's effectively Dunning-Kruger. So it's essentially knowing something about a topic, but not enough to know enough about the topic or have enough experience with the topic to really understand your level of understanding. You think you know a lot, but the reality is there's much, much, much more. And in fact, as you get more and more an expert in topics, people actually typically, commonly experience the converse of the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is the imposter effect. They start feeling like they don't know anything because there's so much to know. You right. feel like an imposter. That's how I feel. I feel like I know nothing. Like Absolutely. I completely, oh, like I'm gaslighting myself. But isn't yeah. the thing with the Dunning-Kruger effect also like the degree to which you think you're an expert in something actually runs in inverse proportion to your knowledge. So really, it's like everyone's walking around a complete uh, farce. And that tends to be true empirically, right? And it is the result of Google searching and thinking that information is wisdom and that you have things a click away and therefore you have knowledge, which you do not. And my peers in medicine have, uh, many of them have framed a, a statement that they put uh, you know, where patients check in, it says, please do not confuse your Google search with my medical training. Because <laughs> to give you a sense, I mean, Google search gives you about what a second year medical student knows cold. And then we spend another six to eight years training on taking care of people and gaining experience with these concepts. And then another 10 years in our practice, really getting a refined expertise. So it takes about 20 years after your Google search of seeing the thing in your Google search a thousand times to get that kind of knowledge and wisdom. Right. So what do you think happened? I mean, is it that the left won the culture wars? Because the thing with the French Revolution is, you know, it, people were fighting over the scraps. It's like, you know, it was over and, you know, people were just sort of decided that they had won and they were just fighting over what remained. So it's the narcissism of small differences concept, right? Exactly. So, but I keep wondering, like, when did it start? Because, you know, in the 90s, I was writing things that were seemed completely um, rational and reasonable. And even if I was wrong, it was okay to sort of submit these ideas. I was listening to you and Adam on Loveline during that decade. And you guys were saying things that I always, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard me say this. I think that you and Adam were the original intellectual dark web love line because you were actually having conversations yeah. about things in a really nuanced way. I mean, I remember yeah. talking about the messaging around safe sex and the AIDS crisis and, you know, the idea that it's an equal opportunity killer and you're just as likely to get HIV if you're a, you know, a, a farm kid uh, living in Wisconsin uh, with, with a virgin as you are, you know, an IV drug using Haitian. And that conversation was not allowed to be had, but you guys were having it. And you weren't getting a lot of blowback in my memory. No, no. We were just, you know, just sort of discussing things. We just sort of, and we took, we happily took contrary opinions and helped us refine it. But, but let me, let me tell you my history with that particular, it's germane to the current uh, circumstance, yes. which is that I, I am 100% guilty of the messaging that of extremity, of extremists, of extremes. Because in 1984, I was up to my forehead in AIDS patients. I was deep in the AIDS, AIDS epidemic for years, taking care of AIDS patients. And where were you working? Tell us where you were working. Were you an infectious disease 
specialist at all? No, I like infectious diseases. I was, did infectious diseases. I was working at LA County Hospital. I did several infectious disease rotations through there. I was a medical resident and we got all the AIDS pa patients. So it was just, just constant. Then I worked on an oncology ward. We were doing AIDS constantly. It was constant. It was just a constant thing. And then when I got into practice, I was so good at it. I step, I would encourage people with HIV and AIDS to come, you know, take care of them, which I did. But that was probably about 84 to 90, something like that. And, and it was the darkest, darkest, darkest time. And, and there's no one around to tell the tale except those of us that were caring for those patients. It was the saddest, darkest. We lost some of the most incredible talents and rich young people. Awful. So I was in the middle of that. I was traumatized. I was traumatized by uh, telling people constantly, like three times a day, you have six months to live, you have six months to live. Wow. I was never wrong. And you were a young physician. I was a 24-year-old, you know, just going to med late medical school resident. And there was this, uh, we had a leader who was telling us to get out there and educate and educate. We have to change the behavior. There's going to be 10 million dead. I remember this number. I think it was 10 million dead. That leader was a guy named Anthony Fauci. And we ended up, instead of 10 million dead, we ended up with 175,000 dead. So we overshot by a factor of 100. <laughs> and we congratulated ourselves. Like, good job. We did it. We scared them enough to change their behavior. We really felt morally justified in doing all of it. Doesn't it kind of sound familiar with what's going on today? And was that conscious? Were there conversations taking place saying, okay, we really, th this modeling we know is off, but we're going to go with this in order to get no. the public response that we want? No. Like, how overt is it? No, there was zero, zero conversation like that. It was, it was more, look at Africa, that's what's coming here. It's much like today, look at Italy, that's what's coming. You know, we, we would say, look at Africa, it's heterosexual, we're going to get, it's, that's how it's going to play out here. Think about it. Look at Italy. That's how New York's going to be. Right. So, and I mean, I don't need to harp on this, but this is something of particular interest to me because I am a, exactly the age, I think there's a small window of us who are like in college, right out of college, where the messaging was like, you are going to get HIV. When I was in college, there were sort of health, you know, health officials or student health representatives, whoever they were, saying, there are lesbians on yeah. this campus that are giving HIV to other lesbians. And we were like, oh, yeah, yeah. it must be true. And is that, yeah. I mean, at that point, it would have been like 1988. So in 1988, did Anthony Fauci really think that? Um, yes. That lesbians could give HIV to other lesbians? Much like you're hearing about, you know, Kawasaki syndrome. Oh, my God, my kid's going to get Kawasaki. We heard of cases where this happened. We're like, ah, see, it's coming. There's the, there's a lesbian couple. They transmitted it. That's it. That's our case in point. We've got to get on this. It wasn't until we were looking back. Believe me, we felt very justified in doing this. We were looking back that we went, huh, kind of overshot. Um, but there's Africa. There's Africa. That's what could have happened. It could have been that. Thank God we didn't let that happen. So no one ever really, certainly no one ever expressed any guilt. That's for sure. There was more ambivalence meets uh, congratulatory attitude about the whole thing, which again, it was horrible. Megan, it was so horrible. You can't imagine how traumatic it was. And I think that was a lot of what was fueling us. It was just horrible. Yeah. And uh, we were like, we can imagine it, you know, getting everywhere. It was just too much. It's right. horrible. Well, and I mean, I see so many parallels now because I yeah. mean, one of the things that I noticed back then with around HIV was that, you know, there was a lot of virtue signaling. It wasn't called that at the time. But, you know, if you were sort of 
progressive, yeah. visibly enlightened person, you would make a big deal about safe sex. I mean, Madonna was putting, you know, HIV, you know, guides to safe sex, what you should know about AIDS in her, you know, album sleeves of, and this was sort of like, if you were hip and cool, you cared deeply about this. But at the same time, people were lying about condom use. There was just this incredible cognitive dissonance. And I'm starting to see it around the COVID crisis and the masks yeah. and the quarantines. Yeah. And, you know, the public face of the quarantine narrative is that if you defy it, if you question it, you're on the wrong side of history. You're some sort of MAGA hat skeptic. Or you're a murderer. You're just a well, you're a literal, murderer. a literal murderer, Drew, because literal yeah. means virtual. Yeah. <laughs> Are doctors talking about these sort of things sort of sotto voce? I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the video that was going around the Kern County physicians. I interviewed him. You interviewed them. Okay. So that was the video where these physicians up in Bakersfield called a press conference because they the data in their county was really not consistent with anything that should be calling for mass quarantines. And this went hugely right. viral and YouTube took it down and put it back up. What do you make of that? They were, they were good guys. They met well. They were not claiming to have peer-reviewed data. They, apparently, the press came to them and said, hey, what are you seeing? Just give us your numbers. And they went, okay. Well, so all three networks came in local and said, what, what are you seeing? And he, then he told the numbers. He made some major, major errors in, in how he interpreted those numbers. He, he confused fatality rate within a population at large versus fatality rate among sick people. He did a lot of comparison with flu, which is a very dangerous sort of comparison to once Fauci said, this is not the flu, it's a lot more deadly and it's a lot more contagious. Again, that's what we should adopt. Stop comparing, listen to Fauci, that's that. I used to compare because the numbers were, to me, looked about the same, like they were going to be about the same, but okay, I, now I've seen the illness and taken care of it. And let me assure you, when it's in a risk population, elderly with a metabolic syndrome, it's ferocious. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. So, I mean, we need to touch on this because you did get dragged, uh, you know, fairly or unfairly over your initial narrative around this. Can you explain a little bit of, of what happened? Because I was with you in the, in the beginning. Your observations were matching my own. So at the beginning, I was on a television show called Daily Blast Live. And they were freaking out over the reports from China. And, and they were reporting things that I knew. First of all, we had no way of knowing what the hell was going on. It was excessive. And I just said, please shut up. Shut up. This has the potential to be really dangerous, both in terms of creating a panic and in terms of forcing medical decision making that shouldn't, that steps outside of a normal risk reward analysis. Shut up, everybody. And that became my credo as this thing came on. I could see the panic form. I could see that the press was going to be pushing medical decision-making, and it offended me, frankly, and I became rhetorically aggressive. I ended every statement, every one. I said, okay, but whatever you do, listen to the CDC, listen to Dr. Fauci, he will get us through this. Now, somebody put together clips of some of my rhetorical excesses, left out my actual guidance, which was listen to the CDC, and that became a 5 million view on YouTube. So I apologized for getting that wrong, which I'm happy to do. I'm happy to apologize if I, I don't get things right all the time. But mostly what I got wrong was, I did not get wrong what the press has done. Because now here we are in a, I just told you some of the concerns we have about interpreting the science of what we're doing. The government is being, you know, called murderers by the press if they try to be scientific. I mean, they, they're, they're in a horrible situation. 
the governors, the local county officials, you know, they have to be the ultimate aggressive in order to avoid some sort of horrific press takedown. That's not a medical decision. And that is because the discourse is just such that it is impossible to have those conversations. Was it easier to have them back in the 90s because there wasn't social media? Was there room for a more nuanced dialogue? Like, has it changed profoundly? Listen, I I, risk-reward analysis is something you're doing medicine constantly, constantly, constantly. And I was interviewing a peer of mine and she launched into one death is too many. I said, well, that's it. Then we're not, we're not talking. We can't, that's, right. that's it. We can't drive cars. It's platitudes. Everything's- one right. death is too many. We better just stay in place until we die. And that's it. That's it. We're, because that's it. There's no more discourse. There's no more risk reward. You've put the risk at a bar that I don't know even how to think about. No, nobody dies. I'm hoping that what this does is gets us all thinking about the reality of aging. And the fact that at, after the age of 85, or even 80 for me, I don't want to be on a ventilator under any circumstances because the data on the year after you're on a ventilator is horrible. Well, and apparently they don't work for COVID. That was a... COVID. Uh, out and step aside of COVID, and let's just talk about aging yeah. and dying for a second, is that if you, the, the, the probability of you living at, at 80, if you get so sick that you need to be on a ventilator for a year afterwards is low. And that year will be horrible. Number two, if I am so neurologically impaired or my physical body deteriorates to the point that I need institutional support, two people to lift and turn me, somebody to feed me, somebody to wipe my ass. Right. No, thank you. No, thank you. I do not want to be cared for in a nursing home. Just there, we'll figure something out. I'll put it in writing. You won't feed me or something. And that will be that. Are doctors having conversations behind closed doors about the lockdowns, the the quarantines, the fact that hospitals were not overcrowded in a lot of places. Like, what are we missing here? I don't know that there's a consensus uh, brewing. You know, as you saw with uh, Dr. Erickson up in Bakersfield, that, that video you talked about, there are many, many, many other physicians that feel very strongly that this is excessive. There are many others that feel that it's uh, appropriate. So I would not say that there is a consensus here yet. I um, in my own office, I have physicians that sort of are on both all sides of things. So we'll see. I think it's, again, it's going to be like HIV and AIDS. We're going to look back and go, here's our assessment. And, and this is all fog of war stuff right now. It really is. And I, and I get these are hard decisions. I would not want to be in the governor's position, some of the things they had to handle. And I certainly would not be, want to be in, a, in the executive branch of the federal government with all this. But right now, I do feel very strongly that county officials should be listened to much, much, much more because they know what's going on in their county. And there should be a case-by-case analysis of how these things roll out. I, I said this six weeks ago. I said local epidemiology is how we're going to get out of this. And I don't think the governors have really quite It's like everything in this country. Everything's better done locally. Everything, everything, everything. And it's the same thing about medicine, by the way. When people talk about these large systems, the most efficient thing we have in medicine is a well-trained, caring physician and a well-informed patient. That's it. That's the most efficient thing we have. You put things on top of that, you create inefficiencies every time. Okay. I want to get back to the thing that you and I both do, which is to act out, shoot our, not shoot our mouths off, but say, <laughs> say what we think. And then, because I think that you, like I, you're like an obedient person. Like I have this thing in my personal life where I never want anyone to be angry with me. I never want anything to be my fault. 
Yes. Yeah. So I'm guilt aversive and, and I'm conflict aversive. Yes. Okay. I mean, like the building could burn down uh, across the street. And my first thought is, oh my God, did I cause that somehow? Like, you know. Or, or I shouldn't have done more. I should have done more to help. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting because, so, you know, there's that. But then I have always really, like, in my public writing and thinking, been really controversial and courted people getting upset and kind of gotten off on it. But then at the same time, like crawled under, you know, get, got in a d- crouch position. So like, how do you balance that? Is that something that you think about a lot? Um, lately, not, not, uh, didn't used to think that much about it. I mean, I, I, this whole thing made me think more about caution and, and I never want to be hubristic. I never do. And sometimes when I get upset about what I'm seeing, it, for whatever reason, so much of what upsets me these days is registered by the press. You know, the, this whole idea of narratives, everything has to have a narrative. It, it runs contrary to every bone in my body that narratives actually distort the truth because very little, very few things actually have the cohesive narratives and they try to always cram it into some narrative and, and that, that distorts it. And, and, and narratives both ways. That's why I don't like to politicize these things. I don't, I, I'm so moderate. I just sit right in the middle and I can see the excesses on both sides and, and I don't like it. I don't, I don't like any of it. Have you always considered yourself moderate or were you like a liberal when you were younger? I always thought I was a, yeah, socially liberal, real liberal, fiscal conservative, that kind of thing. Now I can't even figure out what I am because there's like, there's nobody that to represent me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what's going on. Right. Especially these days. I, I don't understand the state's asking for a trillion dollars. Like, where's that come from? How do we, how do we do that? I, what, I, I'm just totally baffled by our current situation and, and what's motivating the different sides they, other than just fighting with each other, which seems exactly the opposite of helping the American people, which is what they should be interested well, in. Well, and it's amazing because when the pandemic came along, I naively thought, oh, this is great. This is finally going to obviate identity politics because yeah. uh, this is so much bigger than any of that. The tribalism will abate and it's actually just amplified it. Do you feel like you are going crazy? Um, at times I did when I was in the middle of the fog and I, you know, I have anxiety disorder too. So that goes off the chart. What do you mean in the middle of the fog? When I was being attacked and, and the epidemic was underway and I, 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 it was hard to tell what was going on. Over this. And were you being attacked? Was it primarily because of that video? Like, or yeah. Okay. yeah. And so that was truly unfair. Yeah. The criticism was you're a fraud. I'm like, why am I a fraud? Why exactly? What is the criticism? Uh, and it was, you're a murderer, you're a fraud, you shouldn't speak. And I thought, wow, okay. So I shut up for a while and then just tried to be objective about everything and try to learn as much as I could about where we were and what was going on and whether or not I got things wrong and how I could have gotten things wrong, or maybe I didn't get things wrong and, and where I got things right. And so I, I just sort of sat with it for a while. And then now I'm coming out the other side and I'm forming opinions again. And once I have opinions that I, that, that run contrary to what I see going on, I, it's hard not to speak up about it. How does it actually start? Like you notice, do you look at Twitter all the time? Do you have it pretty much in front of you? You don't. I, I usually look at it like, mm, I look at it once in a while with like mm, sideways. And when that was all going on, I wouldn't look at it at all. But how do you, so when something erupts like that, but the problem was it got into my family. So my kids were getting attacked. My wife was going insane. Have you seen the third season of Ozark? No, I haven't seen any of it. It's- well, in there, the wife ends up uh, with a handle of vodka in a Walmart parking lot. And I kept telling her, you're, you're on your way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find you. And I'm- <laughs> 
what's there you're going you're going there she wouldn't you go to walmart me. i don't think it may, maybe uh it got, maybe. It got direct and dangerous and really seriously like n- nearly having to contact the fbi and local police and stuff like that and uh, and what they were doing to my kids were, was so profoundly awful what were they doing to the kids just in terms of you know the reigning sort of attacks on their personhood and these are people on twitter saying things or does it go beyond twitter i don't know i, I they just i could tell me because like they were telling me that you know they were tweeting back you know don't blame me for my dad you know it's like jesus what a horrible thing for position to me to be in that something i did was making them feel horrible it was just it was awful and so, like, where do you think this comes from? What are people getting out of being in a social media mob? What is it? I don't understand it, except I, I have zero instinct for it, but I understand it as the human sacrifice instinct. It's scapegoating. So when I talk about the temples of the Aztecs and I talk about the guillotines, this is the modern version of that. They are not happy until blood is spilled. They go into frenzies. And cancel is the modern guillotine. And if they can't cancel, then they start making actual physical threats. But is it because the left has won the culture wars? This is what I was getting at earlier. Like, they have nothing left to get upset over. I can't think about it in, in those kinds of uh, partisan terms, even. I can't. I just see people, I see, it, I see it as a personality problem, that we have become so traumatized. Our childhoods were so disrupted. There's so much narcissism that all that anger and aggression gets focused somewhere when it's unleashed. It, it's a way of, it, there's theories out there that it's a way of preventing us from killing each other, is that we focus it on one person and we sacrifice that one person. Historically, that one person was a guy that was put up on a cross and he died for us, so we don't have to kill more people. We, that guy died. But we are devoid of any religious sort of, guy, you know, sort of, we're not connected to anything like that anymore, or at least not the way you know, not in great numbers. And so that same impulse got to go somewhere. When this happens to you, you say you have an anxiety disorder. Like, what do you actually do? Do you get upset? Do you like drink? Do you go for a run? What do you do? Running helped me. Sunshine helped me. Just ducking for many days, uh, just not doing anything. But but I am upset. Yes, that's the word. It's like, I'm really, uh, really upset. I, I don't know how else to describe it than that. And hurt and scared and questioning and you know i immediately go to uh, it's my fault right i mean that's that's my default mode which is i did i did something i did something to make this happen what did i do what did i do what did i do and i did the same thing and then i wonder if that is narcissism in and of itself well it's kind of a reverse narcissism right so the, in the way the codependency is kind of a reverse narcissism so yes i have to be careful of that too that's absolutely correct but are you saying that there are specific manifestations of trauma and narcissistic parenting that happened for these generations that are now the bulk of these social media mobs? That's what I think. But I think all through the 90s and the 2000s, what did we do on Loveline? Every call, every call for 20 years, childhood sexual abuse, childhood physical abuse, chaos and drug addiction in the family, abandoning parents, divorce, chaos, domestic violence. Every call, we have been through an epidemic, that's the pandemic we've been through, of extreme unstable families that get acted out on kids. And that doesn't happen in a single, that gets transmitted again and again. That doesn't happen just once. It, it gets transmitted intergenerationally too. But what's so interesting is the traumatized people, the traumatized people didn't used to have so much power. 
because right now we have like a very small but loud group of people on Twitter that the media is taking its cues from. I mean, that's really the problem. It's not the quote unquote social justice warriors on Twitter. It's the fact that CNN takes their lead and the New York Times and the Washington Post and all of academia in the humanities. A friend of mine named Ryan Holiday, a famous Stoic writer, uh, wrote a book. Some, one of his first book was a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, about how this happens. And that was like, I think, 15 years ago he spotted this and was how, how the mainstream media take up spurious stories and make them true by reporting them. I don't know what to make of anything. I don't know what the right, I have enough trouble trying to decide what what the right decision is for a single patient. I can't decide for a state or a country. I, I, this is way above me. So, you know, before this COVID thing hit, I was very involved in trying to change the, the uh, homeless situation, which I'm going to have to go back to because it's not better at all. And they've gotten some off the street, but so what? Now, now the drugs are being distributed to the motels and hotels. Is there a COVID problem among the homeless population or? They're not because they're outside. Because they're outside. That's exactly right. So citizens are required by law to stay in unless you're homeless. Then you can do whatever you want. And you can be at the beach. You can do whatever you want if you're homeless. And what has happened is, uh, at first, the drug supply dried up because the gangs stayed indoors. They were afraid to get COVID. And when the drugs uh, dried up, the homeless became willing to go inside. Normally, they're not, they're not willing. They won't go. And, you have, and there's no laws to allow people to help them. So if they, if they don't say, I want to go, or they, they can't go, they don't go. Well, they became willing. So that they were able to move about 5,000 indoors because of that. Once the uh, things started lightening up, the drugs started getting supplied right to, the, right to the hotels. But what most of them did is switched over to alcohol. So there's been a marked increase in alcohol use and consumption on the streets. And you can kind of see it with the bottles all over the place. And, you know, as you know, drunks can be belligerent. And so we're seeing a lot of problematic, aggressive behaviors now. What do you really think is like the main problem of the world or of life? Just what do people get wrong? Like, is it some, you know, I think it's loneliness, for instance. I think people are, are lonely. And so they end up in social media mobs or, and they also can't be alone. So they make bad relationship choices. They align themselves with bad ideas. We are heading towards an epidemic, again, not to overuse these words, but of loneliness. That's, that, there's a lot of ink being spilled on that being a next major mental health problem. I believe that the health of our families is what's wrong with everything in this country, that if we had healthier family systems, we would have healthier people. And that would be that, uh, that we've, you know, we spent like 20 years saying, well, families are just one way of doing things. You know, they're not really that important. It takes a village, it's whatever. And no, no, no. Families are very important and they are everything and they are the fundamental unit, not just of society, but of shaping a self and shaping a regulatory, emotional regulatory system, everything, everything. You know, we now at least have acceptance that adverse childhood experiences, something called the ACE score. And just before COVID, California was launching into a really big campaign about adverse childhood experiences. And I, I want to get behind that. The Surgeon General of California is, is bringing that. It's a great thing. Once we start acknowledging that ACE scores, which is, again, all the stuff we used to talk about on Loveline, if you have three or more of those, your probability of serious mental health problems, very high. So those are what, like, divorced parents? What would be examples? Divorced parents, domestic violence, abandonment, neglect, sexual abuse, physical abuse, drugs in the home, you know, any kind of aggression and violence, uh, you know, certain... I don't know if they have poverty specifically in there, but, uh, you know, obviously the stress is uh, unstable living environments, anything unstable, any instability 
uh, tends to affect the way children's brains develop. Do you see differences between the callers you had calling into Loveline 25 years ago and young people you're dealing with today? Yeah, like, yeah, what, are, what are the contours of the issues and how do they differ? Well, now you're not, uh, they're very focused on gender, right? And those issues, you're not allowed to discuss biological differences between men and women. Uh, somehow that is sacrosanct. But like patients come to you and they, are you finding that actually in practice or is this sort of something in the ether in terms of the culture? It's not in my practice, but it's in things I'm interacting with in the culture. Right. And, you know, I, I get it. I, that's, that's, that's great. What I don't, I don't sign off on is you don't have gynecology anymore. You can't have a discipline of medicine for women because they are different biologically and anatomically. You, you, you have to deny that. And what, what does urology do? And, and what, what about there's, there's fields in neuroscience that are just about the male brain and just about the female brain. And that's just the way it is. That's just it's science. It's just biology. I, I hope it doesn't oppress anybody. And let's make sure it doesn't. And let's you know, interpret it in, in cautionary ways. I get it. But to pretend that we can't do science to me is just so disturbing. Just so disturbing. So we can't talk about that. But, you know, still a lot of the same old stuff. Am I normal? Why can't I function in a relationship normally? Right. And it goes back to trauma, of course. And so there you are. Right. But now what's wrong with everything, right? You asked what's wrong with everything? What's the problem with everything? Yeah. What's the problem with everything? That I go more back to the abandonment of critical reasoning and the and lack of ability to train people. to do. I, I did not have a good brain for that until I went to college. I had a lazy brain. I know what it is to have a brain that doesn't do that. It's not good. What do you mean you had a lazy brain? You, you got into Amherst. Well, that's where they, that's where they brought it online. Trust but is me. It, were you like so, uh, such a good student? Were you like a, one of those brilliant robots? I mean, I would do what I needed to do to get by. I, I was not, you know, I was not a good writer. When you say I, would, when you say I was a good writer, I'd say good math, good science, but I just did what was necessary, I'd say, you know. And in college, that was a whole different matter, whole different thing. That, that was where I had to engage. And I engaged in a way that, uh, and, and consistently in a way that initially blew my mind and, and scared me. And I couldn't, didn't feel like I could compete. I actually left college for a year because I, I, I couldn't handle it. I was too, and, and I think something about the male brain, I, it was not mature enough to handle it. Because when I came back, it was a whole different thing. Did you take a gap year? Like, were you having yeah, I, a I, like, crisis? Was it like a nervous breakdown? Or like, what, what happened? Were, yeah, I was having panic attacks. I was depressed. You know, I didn't think I was up to it. I had, did a, a semester of uh, pre-med and I was good at it. But I just like, no, th there's really smart people here. Th these guys are going to do that, not me. I, I can't do this. I'm not up for it. And indeed, my brain just wasn't up for it. It really just, it was so hard to engage and to do the time and to spend the, you know, it just, the brain just wasn't going there. And I spent a year doing music and theater and I went back to California for a semester. And um, here's sort of the comedy. I, I, um, I took classes at USC and I remember I was in this sort of religion class or something and, and I turned in a paper and I was working with the TA and I was really nervous. I thought, oh my God, how's this? Because papers at Amherst College were you got your ass handed to you every time you wrote something. I mean, it would be, uh, you would, it was an unpleasant experience talking to the professor about whatever you wrote. And so I was like, oh my God, how's this going to go? And the TA called me in and he said, uh, this is one of the best papers I've ever read. I, well, how did you learn to do this? And it, in my head, I went, oh my God, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I'm a B minus student at, at where I belong. 
this is, I am not an A plus student. No, 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 no. I got to get out. I immediately went back to New England. I was just like, this is, this is not, I, I need to be where a more realistic assessment of, of my abilities and I can grow. And so you needed to feel like an imposter. I guess so. I just knew I, I wanted to train myself. I wanted to grow and, and learn and, and not, again, keep just getting by. Because I've been exposed to, you know, did a year at Amherst. I've been exposed to real, real academia, real uh, scholarly, you know, disciplines. And that wasn't happening at big universities in the 70s. It just wasn't. But it was happening at the college. And so I went back and then I reconsidered. And I was like, oh, my God, maybe those sciences are where I belong. And I immediately started feeling better. And when I went back, I had to haul ass. I had to get it going. And I had to take multiple science classes, which is inadvisable at that school. And I could just do it. Now I could do it. I somehow was committed. I loved it. I got into it. I remember, you know, once I got into medical school, we'd had gross anatomy at the end of every day. And I remember my car was parked on the roof of a parking lot. And I would go to my car every day and go, oh, my God, I'm so I'm so happy. This is so purposeful. This is, I have such meaning in this. I'm so, I'm so excited about everything I'm doing. I'm so grateful. And that stayed with me all the way, pretty much. So it, it was a good experience to turn away from it all and reconsider it and sort of make it your own. And your, your father was a doctor, right? Yeah. And so when I went to college, it was sort of, I assume that's what you would do. And then when I got there, I'm like, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't really know that's what I want to do. And by the way, I'm not like these guys. These guys are too smart. I, I can't do this. I, I'd never been exposed to, again, that level of competition academically I'd never seen. In spite of being in, you know, pretty high level schools and stuff, this was next level for me. And I, and I just, I didn't feel up to it. It must be comforting to amid all of this madness in terms of people's inability to think and not being able to kind of grasp the facts. You are in a world where there are facts and numbers and levels and you're in a real world when you're practicing medicine. Yes, I'm in a world of science and, and science is not just another way of doing things. It's a way of mining the truth about the physical universe. And particularly, I'm interested in biology. And we are just, as Joe Rogan would say, monkeys who talk. And our biology is infinitely complicated, and I am humble before it all the time. But one of the things that I think this pandemic has done is reminded us of that. And I think that could, that could be a good thing. So like I was, we were saying earlier, that if we get a conversation going about aging and end of life and what our wishes are, and a reality about life is finite. We, I, I think we've been in denial for the part of that narcissism. We've been in a denial that we get old and die. Yeah. I mean, I encounter it all the time in, in practice where people go, well, how could this happen? I've never been sick before. Yeah. And now you're 85. Now you're sick. And now it happens. Like, really, that happens a lot. You'd be surprised. And to begin thinking about the reality of aging, the reality of um, our biological existence is, I think, healthy. And so that may be a healthy piece of what's going on here. Right now. That was my conversation with Dr. Drew Pinsky, recorded in May of 2020. Tune in next week for another fabulous guest, which I will announce very soon. In the meantime, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. And you can listen there too. Thanks for joining me. See you next time. I am Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. 
Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY. Now, 